Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm Chuck Keyworth, a retired United Methodist pastor, and I am privileged to be a part of the team that Pastor Aaron has invited to share in the preaching rotation. And so it is an honor for me to be able to come and, and share God's word with you. This morning, though, I'd like to say just a couple of words before I read the scripture and start. This is not my normal sermon. Uh, I figured since the vast majority don't have a, of you have a clue who I am, that maybe it would be helpful for me to give a little bit about my spiritual journey and to share a little bit with who I am and how I came to this place. And so in that regard, it's quite a bit different because I don't normally talk about myself in my sermons, but I thought it would be helpful for today. The other thing I thought it would be helpful for is when most people look at me, they say there's no way that you can be retired. Uh, and so I, I want you to know that journey that brought me to that point. Uh, and in the midst of our time together, you're going to learn my life verse, my life verse that has sustained me and that has been the focus of my journey uh, so that we in tru truly may know the grace and the power and love of Jesus Christ that is so, shown uh, so abundantly and fully in our lives. So I would invite you to listen to these words uh, from Paul's second letter to the people at Corinth. He said to them in chapter 12, it is necessary to boast, nothing is to be gained by it, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into, uh, was caught up into paradise and heard these things that are not to be told. That no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except for my weakness. But if I do wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak then I am strong. Will you pray with me? Almighty and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship, the privilege of gathering together in this place to offer you our praise, but also to come and to hear your word. We pray that your spirit would fill this place, would fill each of us this morning. Come, spirit, into our midst. 
And we pray that just as Matt prayed a few moments ago, that you would remove all of the preoccupations, all the worries, all the anxieties of this day and this coming week so that those might be pushed away so that we may focus upon you and you alone in these next moments. For we offer ourselves in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Well, I came to faith in Jesus Christ when I was in my first year of college. I met the Lord, and his word just was something I couldn't get enough of. And so I was reading and reading and and studying. And two years later, while I was in my third year of college, God called me to the ordained ministry. I thought, how can someone so young, with so little knowledge, be called to lead God's church? That was very intimidating. And I wrestled with that, with a number of other issues around that, for a couple of years until I finally said, okay, God, if you're going to call, you need to provide, you need to equip, you need to lead. And so uh, right after college, my wife, Della, and I, we were married and off to seminary at United Theological Seminary in Dayton. And there we began that time of training. During my time at, at United, I wasn't feeling all that well. Health just would come and go, and just, my doctor just couldn't get a handle on what was going on. And by the time my last year of seminary rolled around, I was very sick, and I went to the doctor one morning, called him and said, you need to see me today. I got in. He took one look at me and sent me to the emergency room, uh, Good Samaritan Hospital. Uh, they saw me. They didn't wait any time at all, and they wheeled me right into surgery. After surgery, uh, during surgery, they found that it wasn't my appendix, which they were expecting it to be, but instead they found an advanced case of Crohn's disease. Now, 35 years ago, people didn't know much about Crohn's disease. Actually, my doctor hadn't even heard of the disease before. And so I began to struggle. The next couple of days were a real struggle just to be able to survive. And after 10 days, I finally was able to be released and go back home. But during those 10 days, I was serving as a student pastor, and I had a group of guys from my congregation who would come regularly, and they would pray for me, pray for healing, pray for God to work in a great way. And, And we weren't seeing much healing We weren't seeing that healing. Yes, I was out of the danger of death, but there wasn't much healing going on. And my friends uh, began to say to me, uh, Chuck, if you would just confess your sins and acknowledge those things before the Lord, you could be healed. Believe me, I prayed for every sin that I could imagine and every one that I didn't know that I'd committed. I was lifting those to the Lord And there was still no healing. They said, Chuck, if you just had more faith, you could be healed. Well, I was, you know, only four or five years into faith. I thought, well, maybe I don't have enough faith. But no healing. I went home from the hospital, and there we journeyed in the the journey of life and the healing process. Uh, He got over the initial things of the Crohn's disease, but still was living with the effects of it. Graduated from seminary and went back to my home state of Michigan. And there we uh, took an appointment 
and for the next five years continued to deal with this Crohn's disease. And then for whatever reason at that time, God allowed that disease to go into remission. And for the next 10 years, the next 10 years I lived pretty much uh, free of that disease. But I need to tell you what happened to me while I was back in Dayton before I get fully into that story. I struggled immensely. I mean, how many of you, I appreciate this church being a church of of prayer, of healing. How many of you have seen or experienced the power of God to bring healing to miracles? Yeah, I believe in that. I trust it. I've seen it over and over again. But how many of you have also had difficulties in your life where you've prayed and you haven't had an answer? Any of you? A lot more hands up there. I would dare say that there's, there are many more who've prayed for God's miracle to take place that have not received that than would have received the miracle. So how do we make sense of that? I mean, we look around the world and we see so much brokenness. I turn on the TV and I see brokenness all around us. And it's not just outside the church. I've been a pastor long enough to know that people who gather inside the church are just as broken as those who are outside We're not exempt from the problems of our world. So how do we make sense of that when when we know that God has power to heal, but it's not happening? How do we deal with that? And so I spent a lot of time uh, when I was in the hospital and when I was home, and all I could do is sit there in my reclining chair trying to recover, and I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of reading to try to come up with an answer, not for the church, But for me, how was I going to lead the church if I didn't have an answer for that? And so I began to read. And you know where we'd like to start in those stories, don't you? Job. What a great passage that Job offers to us. Job, you, you remember that story, don't you? In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkey, and a number of servants. And he was the greatest man of all the people of the East. What a guy. Here's a guy who's got everything. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's known as the greatest man in all the East. But One day, when the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them, and the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. It's almost like God's bragging on Job, isn't it? Job is living such an upright, holy life. God says, I am, I am pleased with the righteousness of this man. Well, Satan has an answer to that. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has? But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord says to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. And he goes on to say, but you can't touch his body or his life. 
God says, I trust my servant to be able to face whatever Satan is going to throw at him. And you know those attacks, don't you? Two major attacks against Job. The first one, you're familiar with it. One day, his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell among them and carried them all off and killed them and killed your servants by the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came up and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid of the camels and carried them off and killed the servants by the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Talk about a bad day. In a matter of a few hours, all of Job's wealth is gone. Wealth in that environment was an agricultural, and so wealth was about the livestock you had. So look, all of his ox and all of his donkey, all of his sheep, all of his camels, gone in a matter of moments. And not only that, his ch- 10 children, seven boys, three daughters, are all killed in a matter of moments. All the servants killed. What does that do to a guy? Well, we know how Job responded. Naked I came into this world. Naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord must have been pretty pleased with that. And so Satan comes back to him. They hold another council and they're gathering there. And the Lord again said to to Satan, where have you been? What have you been up to? And he said, well, I've been roaming around the earth again. So the Lord, we pick up in verse 1, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that people have, they will give to save their own lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job and the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a posture with which to scrape himself and he sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as a foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. The patience of Job, as we say. One who endured everything. Now Satan knew that if he wanted to destroy Job, he could destroy everything, take away everything that he had. But then the second attack was even more vicious because it said, I'm going to go after his health. I'm going to go after his health, and therefore I'm going to destroy him. And Job, this patient man of Job, endures and said, I'm going to still praise God. Well, when we study Job, uh, most people, that's where we end the story. 
But if we were to read the rest of that book, chapters 33 through 37, almost 35 chapters, Job is in conversation with his friends. And I put friends in uh, little quotes there because sometimes I wonder how good of friends they really were. They came and those friends began to say to him, you know, Job, if you would just confess your sins. Job, if you did this or do that, God would heal you. And because God's not healing you, you must not be right with God. You need to get your act together. And over and over for 35 chapters. And Job begins to cry out to God saying, God, where are you? God, where are you in the midst of all this? God, I want I want an audience with you. I want to be able to sit down and talk with you and you tell me what in the world's going on. Demanding that of God. Well, friends, I think we've all been there. I've been there. Wanting to know why God was doing what he was doing. Why isn't he responding? And Job lived that out, wanting to hear from God. Well, Job was just one person I looked at in the midst of that uh, and was wondering all that. But the thing about Job before I moved from him is why was Job receiving those attacks? They were not because he had done something wrong, which is usually our first response, is it? What have I done to deserve this? Those attacks were not because he had done something wrong, but because he was righteous. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying I was so righteous that that God was doing that. But sometimes things happen because Satan wants to get us and destroy us. Not because we've done anything bad, but because we're living faithful lives. And Friends, I have to tell you that sometimes when I grow closer to Christ, that's when Satan's attacks are the strongest. And so he called, uh, so we see here it wasn't Job's faithlessness, but his faithfulness. And Satan wanted to destroy that. And so these, these attacks were because of his righteousness. Well, the next person I went to look at during those days was Paul. You remember Paul, don't you? A man who, as Saul, had all of the degrees, all of the the status behind him to be able to lead the Jewish councils. And he went on a rampage seeking to kill the Christians. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians and he met Jesus Christ in a a vision and he was struck blind and three days later he was prayed for and he was, um, his sight was restored and he began to preach Jesus Christ there in Damascus. And then he went back to, uh, went back to Jerusalem and began to preach Christ and a lot of people were really concerned. They said, what's this guy all about? Has Paul really changed from persecuting Jesus and his followers to praising Jesus and seeking to build followers? Or is this just a trap? People didn't know how to take Paul. So out of that background, as I'm reading 2 Corinthians, I see that Paul says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul The great apostle had a thorn in his flesh that he had to deal with. Now, what was that thorn in his flesh and why? Well, if we read the passage a little bit further, go just a little earlier in that that verse, it says, therefore, to keep me from being 
too elated, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. To keep him from being too proud. To keep him from boasting. To keep his pride under check. And so he said, to keep me from being elated, I was given this. So why would he have pride? Why would he have boasting? Because of the revelations he had received. Now it's interesting, when we started that chapter, Paul says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up in a vision, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but only God knows. And in case you didn't miss it, he tells us again. And he talks about this man until he goes about three, four, five verses. Then he switches. It's no longer in the third person. He says, but me, I. And it's easy to see that he wasn't talking about just some man who had a vision. He was talking about him who had a vision. Him, himself, that had received a revelation from God. And so we say, well, what was his revelation? What was the revelation that he received that would cause him to be prideful? Look at Galatians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, nor did I receive it from human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we're told in Acts, we're told in Acts that when Paul got back to Jerusalem, he was causing so much of a turmoil with what was going on, they sent him home. They took him to Caesarea, put him on a boat, and said, go back home to Tarsus. And the scripture says, once Paul was gone, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria knew a time of peace. Needed to get Paul out of there. But what did Paul do when he was gone? He had a revelation. He was taught the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ fully in a revelation from God. And so that is how he knew his power and he could preach with such authority is because the message that he had received was not from the other apostles, not even from the scripture. It was a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. And so he had this. And so to keep him from boasting on that revelation... He was given this thorn in the flesh. So what was his thorn in the flesh? A lot of scholars believe that it was a health issue. A health issue. During the first missionary journey, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark were traveling to take the message. They got as far as Pamphylia. Pamphylia is known as a very rugged area. You you get to the coast and then you're going up the mountains. It was an area that was known to be rampant with malaria and all kinds of issues. The scripture says in Acts 13.13 that John Mark went home. That's all it says. A lot of people can probably speculate that he went home because the journey was looking really tough. Maybe he himself got sick. Maybe it was more overwhelming and and that he bit off more than he could chew when he was going home. Paul, many scholars believe that he became sick at that time. A lot of issues of what they say that sickness might be, but many will say from the scripture that maybe his eyesight was impacted. That his eyesight, Galatians Chapter 6, at the end of that letter, he says, see with what large letters I write. What large letters I make. He's not talking about the length of letters he's writing. He's talking about the size of the letters. Compare your signature with the 
a child that's just learning to print, to print their name, what's the difference in size between your printing and that child's printing? Paul had a scribe. Every one of his letters, there was a scribe. But at the end of those letters, he would make a note, see, I am signing this with my own hand, kind of almost as a seal, because he couldn't see very well, and people would begin to recognize his signature, because his eyesight. And that isn't the only thing that was an issue. Look at Galatians 4. Galatians tells us a lot about Paul's journey, by the way. Galatians 4, he says, you know that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. But you did not scorn me or despise me, but you welcomed me. And had it been possible, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Does that speak about somebody who's having eye problems? You would have gladly given me your own eyes. And yet Paul faced this thorn in the flesh pretty much his entire ministry. And he continued to preach with power and enthusiasm. And we know that Paul said three times, he says, I appealed to the Lord about this. I don't know about you, but when I'm having a problem, three times isn't enough. I'm praying that more than daily. I am pleading that case before the Lord when there's something difficult going on. In my life, Paul says, I prayed three times. But did you catch the message? The message, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. God said, my grace is sufficient. Friends, that's my life verse. God saying to me, my grace is is sufficient. My grace is enough. For Chuck, in the midst of your weakness, that's when my power is going to be revealed. And that has been shown over and over and over in the journey of my life. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace brought me through that difficult time at United and started me on the journey to ordain ministry. God's grace provided for me over and over and over again. Proving his power in the midst of my weakness. And then, as I said, for, after five years, he allowed that disease to go into remission. And I praise God for that. After 15 years of being a solo pastor, I was invited to serve at Midland First United Methodist Church. I was one of three associate pastors there and began my role as a, uh, as a part of a team as opposed to being on my own in, in pastoral ministry. And then things started to take a downward spiral. I started almost regularly, it seemed, ending up in the hospital. I believe out of 18 years at Midland First, I'd been in the hospital uh, at least 14 times. Hospital stays in and out. Sometimes they were related to Crohn's disease. Other times it was the consequence of all of the other things going on because of the Crohn's disease and living for that with this disease for so long. And so it seemed like there for a while, I could almost count every year and a half, I was back in the hospital for another week. But yet God was continuing to bless the ministry there. 
A new worship service was added. A new family ministry was begun. Uh, Our pastoral staff grew to five. We had numerous full-time lay staff and part-time lay staff. Things were going well. New adult uh, small groups and Sunday schools were forming. Things were going well. And then 2009 hit for me, 10 years ago now. I preached the 11 o'clock Christmas Eve service after a a fall that was pretty tough health-wise. The day after Christmas, I finally gave in and said, I guess I better get to the hospital. Went to the hospital a few days later, had another surgery for the Crohn's disease. Was told everything went well, as planned. And three days later, before I went home, my colon ruptured. If I would have been at home, I may never have lived through it. But because I was still in the hospital, they immediately rushed me into surgery. It was nip and tuck for almost two weeks of whether I would make it or not. A five-week stay in the hospital where I struggled to fight for my life. And as much as I struggled, those words continue to come into my mind. God saying, my grace is sufficient. Prayed for healing. The healing that was answered is, Chuck, you're going to live. But it was no further than that. At least that's what it felt. They finally sent me home after uh, about five weeks. And they really thought I shouldn't have went home. But they thought I needed to get out of the hospital environment for my mental sake. I went home and there were two or three times the doctors and the visiting nurses thought I should go back in the hospital, but they did everything they could. And, and granted, I finally turned the corner. After some three months, I finally went back to, to church to work part-time. And because God's grace is sufficient, because there is power in the midst of our own weakness, God opened a brand new ministry for me that I never dreamed. As I was recovering, I ended up with an ileostomy. I didn't tell the congregation that. I didn't want, I, I, I didn't want a, a lot of sympathy. I just wanted to be in ministry. And they loved on me. They cared for Adela and myself. My, our son David was still at home and they cared for him. But I wanted to do ministry and not get caught up in pity and all of that. So I didn't tell much about it, but the word got out. And so people started coming to my office. People who had just received ileostomies or colostomies, and they were wondering, what do I do with this change in my body? How do I handle this? Now, I wasn't an expert on how to handle the appliances, but I could say I walked the journey with you and we would pray together and we would talk together and they knew that there was somebody who understood what they were going through. I had people right and left coming to my office. I never knew there were so many people living with colostomies and ileostomies. But it opened a ministry that I never would have had before. After a few months, my doctors said, Chuck, I think you're improved enough that we can actually remove the ileostomy and we can reconnect the plumbing, so to speak. And so they went, did surgery, and nothing went right again. 
Went home from the hospital right back in. My entire digestive system shut down. Nothing would work. And so we, the doctors worked with me. I was in the hospital another month. For two months, there was not anything that crossed my lips into my stomach because my system wasn't working. And so for two months, better part of two months, I hooked up a, a bag that had uh, liquid nutrients and p- hooked it to a pump and put it into a port in my arm that was my nutrients. And I carried that bag and pump around 16 hours a day for two months, not eating a thing. But yet God was still faithful because I, during that time, my weight remained almost the same because they had balanced the nutrients in the TPN, it's called, enough. And God was still providing. My grace was sufficient. Finally, we got off of that, got back to work. Things still weren't going real well. Things, I still had trouble on and off, and that's when I made the shift to Cleveland Clinic and all the specialists there who became my new team of doctors who helped me to continue to cope and deal with the things that were going on. Also found more than Crohn's disease. They found a few other things to add on top of all of it. But at least now we knew what they were so we could deal with them. Again, God said, my grace is sufficient. If you know what you have to deal with, I can help you deal with it. And so he did. And he provided that grace that is sufficient. Over the course of the next few weeks, because I, or the next few years even, my health was up and down so much, and the congregation loved me so much. I, I appreciate them. That when I go in the hospital and come back, I, I never once heard a complaint saying, Chuck, you had six months off this year alone in recovery. They continued to pay my salary and my health insurance. If it wasn't for that, I'd be homeless and, and out of a home. The medical bills were piling up. But this congregation loved me and continued to nurture me. And and I I appreciated that. But it got to the point where every time I walked into the church and saw somebody, they'd say, hey, Chuck, how are you doing today? I'd go and one of my areas was in pastoral care. And by the way, I think I learned more about pastoral care back in Dayton, Ohio, in the hospital than I ever learned in any of my seminary classes about pastoral care and death and dying. That was my ministry. And yet I felt like I couldn't do ministry. I'd go to visit one of my shut-ins and they'd spend the whole time wanting to talk about me. Chuck, how are you doing today? How's, how are things? And I thought, this is not ministry. And I began to pray, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to, to, to shift here? And so I began to think maybe it's time to move. And I think, oh, that's not a good idea because then I'm going to get caught in the same bind uh, only they won't understand my past and they might not accept it. And so I thought, well, maybe I need to start looking at retirement. And we started, we arbitrarily set a date that we could try to hold in there long enough with the health. And then uh, the year I made a decision, just be, as I was waffling with it, I hadn't announced it. Della and I had, had spoke about it. We were prepared for retirement. And I started waffling, saying, no, I don't think I should do this. There were some things going on in the ministry. I felt like I needed to stay. And then that fall, on a Friday night, after I had met with a family for a funeral, I had met with them. I already had the sermon for the funeral written, the bulletin done. I ended up in the hospital. Friday night. 
had to call one of the other associates and say, you're on for the funeral tomorrow. I didn't like putting my colleagues in that kind of position. I had done it before. I had done it with weddings. I had done it with funerals. It wasn't fair to my colleagues. It wasn't fair to the congregation. I got out of the hospital. I did a wedding that weekend. I had no right doing that wedding. I could hardly stand up, let alone officiate a wedding. But my own guilt said I need to do this because I didn't want to let this young couple down that I knew very well. And I thought, now's the time to go. Now's the time to, to, go, into ministry, to go into retirement because I cannot, in my mind, continue to put the other staff, the other pastors, and the congregation in situations where they had to cover me to do extra work where I couldn't care for their needs. And so we made the decision to retire. Along the way, God had opened up doors for us to retire here in Marysville, uh, to be near our daughter and son-in-law who live over in Hilliard. And as God always has grace that is enough, we are expecting our first grandchild Uh, in two weeks, and we've been here so that we can help with the nursery and all of those things. God has opened doors, and we trust that God's going to continue to open doors. And why do I have that confidence? Is because I look at Paul. I look at Job. I look at Jesus. Jesus, if all people should be exempt from suffering, shouldn't it be Jesus? But Jesus, when he faced mockery, rejection, death on a cross for your sins and my sins so that we might be forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. Ten out of the twelve disciples faced a martyr's death. If anybody should be exempt from problems, shouldn't it be the disciples? When James says, "If not if you have trials, it's when you have trials. Not if you are tempted, it's when you are tempted. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And look what happens when we trust in God's grace. In Job chapters 38 through 41, uh, God takes the podium and says, listen, Job, why are, you, why are you questioning my power, my wisdom, and my plan? And he starts, where were you when? And lists all kinds of questions. It was a call to trust and rely upon God in tough times, even when we don't understand even when we don't have immediate answers, even when God answers in ways that are not our answers. And then chapter 42 is filled with blessings back upon Job's life. The apostle Paul, he learned that my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, God said to him, for power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, that's the message for us. We are broken. There are times we are broken. And there are times when we pray in the midst of our brokenness for healing and for a miracle. And I believe God can answer those. But there are times God chooses to say, I have a better plan. I have something I want you to learn. And so he calls us to trust. Friends, I have learned more about faith and grown in my faith in the difficult times in the journey of life than I have in the blessings. 
I experience the healing power of God. I see miracles around me and I celebrate and rejoice. But when I really grow in faith is when I know that I am weak and I have to rely on the power of Christ to hold on to my hand and to know that God's grace is enough. God's grace, that unbelievable love of God, a love of God that is so deep, so we don't deserve it. It's unmerited. We don't earn it. It's just given to us. A love of God that offers to us a relationship through Jesus Christ. God offers us that relationship and his power is perfected in our weakness. Grace is enough. I've learned that. There are times I have to be reminded of it. But as the praise band comes up, to sing, and in a moment, uh, we're going to have some prayer stations, and Matt's going to tell us about that. I want you to know, friends, if, you, if you're one of those right now that are hurting, and it feels like you're broken, and you've been praying for a miracle, and it just doesn't seem like it's happening, God's grace is sufficient. And I invite you to come and pray with somebody that you might find that encouragement and that hope. God's grace is sufficient no matter what our needs are, whether it's today or tomorrow or next year. The reality is we're all going to face some kind of struggle along the way, and God's grace is sufficient. Always has been, always will be. God's grace is sufficient. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we give you praise that you love us enough to give us your grace that you love us enough, that you tell us, I have power in the midst of your weakness. If you'll just trust me, I'll help you in the journey because my grace is sufficient for you. We give you praise for that, O oh God, in the name and power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're going to enter into a time of prayer. But before we do, Chuck, before you sit down, stand up for a second. Just explain to the church what we're praying for down here with this place. As I mentioned, my daughter and son-in-law have um, conceived and their son will be born within the next couple weeks. In the journey, there was a lot of problems in that pregnancy. So much so that at one point, the doctors were telling them to terminate the pregnancy. All of the things looked like nothing would work and we shared that with a few of our friends here in this church and we began praying for a miracle we won't know the extent of that miracle until the baby's born but all of the tests that one week to the next to the next kept getting worse and worse all of a sudden changed and started getting better and better and better there's still a couple of minor issues that that baby's facing but all of the life threatening all of the life deformities the doctors have all ruled out at this point. God still works miracles. And we've been blessed in this church. We've been surrounded with prayer. We've already received a, a blanket for the, the baby. And uh, today this quilt is being dedicated to the Lord to be able to give uh, to my grandson. And we're going to deliver it to my daughter this afternoon. And so as we gather for prayer, if you want to come up and, and pray a prayer over this 
uh, this baby's quilt, I invite you to come as well as to all of the other prayer stations. So prayer team, if you would, go ahead and get into place this morning. We've got a few other things up here. We've got the, the prayers for prisoners up here as well. So we're just going to enter in time of prayer and our time of worship. The ushers are actually going to be taking up the offering as well. So if you need prayer for anything, go ahead and feel free to come on up. Some of you want to come up and be praying over the blanket as well.